This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address mercurialspirit.co.uk From October to Brest-Litovsk by Leon Trotsky Chapter 26 The Second World War and the Signing of Peace During the first few days following the breaking off of negotiations, the German government hesitated, not knowing what course to pursue. The politicians and diplomats evidently thought that the principal objects had been accomplished and that there was no reason for coveting our signatures. The military men were ready, in any event, to break through the lines drawn by the German government at Brest-Litovsk. Professor Krieg, the adviser of the German delegation, told a member of our delegation that a German invasion of Russia under the existing conditions was out of the question. Count Merbach, then at the head of the German missions at Petrograd, went to Berlin with the assurance that an agreement concerning the exchange of prisoners of war had been satisfactorily reached. But all this did not in the least prevent General Hoffmann from declaring on the fifth day after the Brest-Litovsk negotiations had been broken off that the armistice was over, antedating the seven-day period from the time of the last Brest-Litovsk session. It were really out of place to dilate here on the moral indignation caused by this piece of dishonesty. It fits in perfectly with the general state of diplomatic military morality of the ruling classes. The new German invasion developed under circumstances most fatal for Russia. Instead of the week's notice agreed upon, we received notice only two days in advance. This circumstance intensified the panic in the army, which was already in a state of chronic dissolution. Resistance was almost unthinkable. The soldiers could not believe that the Germans would advance after we had declared the state of war at an end. The panicky retreat paralyzed the will even of such individual detachments as were ready to make a stand. In the working men's quarters of Petrograd and Moscow, the indignation against the treacherous and truly murderous German invasion reached a pitch of greatest intensity. In these alarming days and nights, the workers were ready to enlist in the army by 10,000, but the matter of organizing lagged far behind. Isolated, tenacious detachments, full of enthusiasm, became convinced themselves of their instability in their first serious clashes with German regulars. This still further lowered the country's spirits. The old army had long ago been hopelessly defeated and was going to pieces, blocking all the roads and byways. The new army, owing to the country's general exhaustion, the fearful disorganization of industries and the means of transportation, was being got together too slowly. Distance was the only serious obstacle in the way of the German invasion. The chief attention of the Austro-Hungarian government was centered on the Ukraine. The Rada, through its delegation, had appealed to the governments of the central empires for direct military aid against the Soviets, which had by the time completely defeated the Ukrainians. Thus did the petty bourgeois democracy of the Ukraine, in its struggle against the working class and the destitute peasants, voluntarily open the gates to foreign invasion. 
At the same time, the Spinhufert government was seeking the aid of German bayonets against the Finnish proletariat. German militarism openly and before the whole world assumed the role of executioner of the peasant and proletarian revolution in Russia. In the ranks of our party, hot debates were being carried on as to whether or not we should, under these circumstances, yield to the German ultimatum and sign a new treaty, which, and this no one doubted, would include conditions incomparably more onerous than those announced at Brest-Litovsk. The representatives of the one view held that just now, with the German intervention in the internal war of the Russian Republic, it was impossible to establish peace for one part of Russia and remain passive, while in the south and in the north, German forces would be establishing a regime of bourgeois dictatorship. Another view, championed chiefly by Lenin, was that every delay, even the briefest breathing spell, would greatly help the internal stabilization and increase the Russian powers of resistance. After the whole country and the whole world had come to know of our absolute helplessness against foreign invasion at this time, the conclusion of peace would everywhere be understood as an act forced upon us by the cruel law of disproportionate forces. It would be childish to argue from the standpoint of abstract revolutionary ethics. The point is not to die with honor, but to achieve ultimate victory. The Russian Revolution wants to survive, must survive, and must, by every means at its disposal, avoid fighting an uneven battle and gain time, in the hope that the Western revolutionary movement will come to its aid. German imperialism is still engaged in a fierce annexationist struggle with English and American militarism. Only because of this is the conclusion of peace between Russia and Germany at all possible. We must fully avail ourselves of this situation. The welfare of the revolution is the highest law. We should accept the peace which we are unable to reject. We must secure a breathing spell to be utilized for intensive work within the country and especially for the creation of an army. At the Conference of the Communist Party, as well as at the Fourth Conference of the Soviet, the peace partisans triumphed. They were joined by many of those who in January considered it impossible to sign the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. Then, said they, our signature would have been looked upon by the English and French working men as shameful capitulation, without an attempt to fight. Even the base insinuations of the Anglo-French chauvinist to the secret compact between the Soviet government and the Germans might, in the case that treaty had been signed, find credence in certain circles of European laborers. But after we had refused to sign the treaty, after a new German invasion, after our attempt to resist it, and after our military weakness had become painfully obvious to the whole world, after all this, no one dare to reproach us for surrendering without a fight. The Brest-Litovsk Treaty, in its second enlarged edition, was signed and ratified. In the meantime, the executioners were doing their work in Finland and the Ukraine, menacing more and more the most vital centers of great Russia. Thus the question of Russia's very existence as an independent country is henceforth inseparably connected with the question of the European Revolution. End of chapter 26